Welcome, everyone. Welcome to a special Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker. And if you're a regular listener, you'll know that we weren't intending to do a podcast this week, but I think it's just been such a crazy, crazy week that we felt we really wanted to put something out there about coronavirus and how we're managing this in general practice. So today is going to be pretty quick. It's not going to be the usual format. We're not going to go through lots of the new research from the last week. We're simply going to have a simply going to have a brainstorm about what's been going on. We're going to have a debrief about what's been going on in the latest recommendations, how it's hitting the country, how that's affecting us as um, professionals and as humans. And I'll do a little bit at the end where we have um, some people have asked us a few questions, which we don't necessarily have the answers for, but we'll but we'll try and see what we can come up with. So I was duty doctor in the practice yesterday, and I have to say I went into work feeling slightly nervous. This is not usual. I don't normally feel a little bit a bit anxious when I'm going in for a normal working day. But of course, these are unprecedented times. And I'm not worried about getting coronavirus. I don't think most of us are worried about catching coronavirus. I think we're just worried about how we're going to manage as a profession with the sheer level of uncertainty, worry from the public and um, and the potential level of illness. I have to say, although it's easy to pick holes in how the response has been in the UK, in um, Ireland, in other sort of Western nations over the last few weeks. And there'll always be debates around if something could have been done better. I've been truly impressed at the level of response. So from our public health colleagues, our friends, um, you know, who are working round the clock, initially trying to trace cases, trying to get a plan together to slow the condition down, buy us that time so that we can formulate a more dedicated response. They've done an excellent job. Our colleagues at the hospital, some of those putting themselves um, in genuine in genuine danger, looking after um, severely unwell people who do have coronavirus. I think that's truly impressive. And I've been really impressed with uh, the primary care response as well. And I'll talk a bit more about just you know what what we've been doing and what we what we will have to do over the next few weeks. So I had just over seventy calls as duty doctor yesterday, and I was um, perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was staggered by the level of people who were phoning up with flu symptoms. So. I feel like over the past few months, there's not been a lot of circulating flu. I feel that we had a bit of a spike where I am sort of around the Christmas period, and then it seems to have died off. And it just seems highly unlikely that the 20 or so people that I spoke to who had classic flu symptoms um, will only have influenza. Yesterday, of course, we had the government announcement, and they said in that the um, the chief scientific officer, Sir Patrick Vallance, who gave an excellent explanation about what is a pandemic, what we're doing and what we should expect. He was saying that the modelling studies suggest that there may be, even though we've got 500 confirmed cases as of yesterday, um, probably 5,000 to 10,000 cases in the community. 
uh, I can't help but think that it's got to be lots more than that already. I mean, if I'm seeing um, maybe 20 possible cases, and it is only possible cases, some of these may be flu, it may be that people are just reporting their symptoms more when they would have previously managed them themselves at home and not actually bothered the GP. But it seems a remarkable coincidence that we're seeing this increase in levels just as, um, as coronavirus is starting to ramp up. So it's been quite hard to keep up with all the changes. Things are rapidly evolving over the last week or so. And yesterday we had further new recommendations on how we define a possible case of COVID-19. Essentially, the recommendations are that anyone that has a persistent cough or a fever of more than 37.8 should be assumed to have COVID-19 and should self-isolate for seven days these patients will not be tested. So in fact, testing in some in some senses have been ramped down. So they're not going to be testing the majority of people in the community anymore. That's going to be reserved for people who are very unwell in hospital. So we now really do have no way of separating out who will have coronavirus, who's got um, standard flu, who's got um, a simple upper respiratory tract infection. I think the uncertainty that this creates is the hardest part for us. This, uh, this uncertainty makes it very, very difficult for us to manage in primary care. And I think this is what creates a lot of the anxiety for us. On the one hand, you could say, well, if people are unwell and they meet their criteria, then they should just be managed at home. And in fact, it makes things incredibly simple. But yesterday I was talking to people who had a variety of different severity of illness and trying to separate out who's got just a normal flu, who's got an exacerbation of their asthma due to some virus, who might have a pneumonia, which ones are really sick, is uh, is very challenging. It's challenging on the phone, um, but of course we don't particularly want to see these patients face to face. We don't want to bring them into the practice um, to expose all the other patients to them. Ultimately, people will still need routine general practice. They'll still need to have their chest pain assessed. They'll still need to have their mental health looked after. They'll still need to have their wound care delivered. So we need to be able to keep general practice running. It needs to be functioning on some level. Now, I don't have any inside knowledge to this, but I highly suspect that part of the decision about who we can test is simply down to resources. There are a limited number of tests. They can only be produced so quickly. There's only so much reagent, so many uh, analyzers that can process the result. There's only so many staff that can take the tests and protective gear to um, protect those staff taking the tests. So as things escalate, there's no real possibility for testing absolutely everyone. It's just not, uh, it's just not feasible. But the question then remains, how do we assess people that have probable coronavirus but are unwell and do need assessment without putting our patients, our friends, our colleagues, our families at risk? And the answer, of course, is to try and keep suspected cases separate from uh, people who are not suspected to have the illness. And the way to do this would be to have some kind of local hubs where people who are unwell can go. Um, they'll see dedicated staff who have proper protective equipment and they can get fully assessed um, that way. I suspect that we may need to be some of the staff. Those of us who are able are, are going to have to try and pitch in. But I think this is the only way that we'll be able to manage things as, as more and more cases come out. Along with the government's response yesterday and us all watching Boris fumble through some attempt at science, 
We also had some important information published and emailed by Nikki Kanani, who's the um, Director of Primary Care for NHS England. And I think very, very sensibly, as she's wrote, the idea is that we should be moving as practices to total triage systems. So using phone or email to triage patients. So forget those bookable face-to-face appointments. We don't want those. We don't want people in the practice. Let's try and do all of this over the phone. And I think this is very, uh, very, very sensible. I know uh, quite a few practices around the country already do this. They do kind of like a GP first system where they'll have a list of patients who are trying to get an appointment on the day. You'll phone them. If you can manage over the phone, so be it. If they need to come in, then they can come in. And I think this is going to be the way forward for the foreseeable future. I think it's interesting that there are um, some direct parallels between pandemics and wartime. And one of the things that wars do is drive innovation and drive uh, new technologies. And I think we're going to see this happening in primary care. So uh, we're going to shift to a clinician first system. I say clinicians because it's not just about GPs. Everyone's going to be mucking in. In our practice, we've got an excellent group of practice nurses who are extremely skilled, extremely experienced that help run our triage, who help run our minor illness um, uh, clinics. We've got an extremely um, good pharmacist, a physician associate. Um, Everyone's going to be pitching in, I think. And so this clinician first approach, I think is going to be very popular. And it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of GP practices don't go back to the traditional booking systems that we've used, uh, many of us have used for years and years and years, because they find it is a more successful way of managing their workload and improving waiting times for people. We've got an integrated text system from a company called Accurist. I'm sure there's a few others out there. Many of you will be using this one. Uh, but it does. it's a really, really effective tool. I see they've now introduced a new little button that allows you to do video consultations as well. It's almost like they're prophetic um, <laughs> with their timing. But I, th- I guess this is another useful tool for us that allows just a slightly better clinical assessment remotely than simply doing a telephone call can do. You'll be able to have a look and see you know, eyeball those patients. Do they look that unwell? What's their respiratory rate doing? Do they look grey as hell? What's going on? Um, And I think that's going to be something that we're going to adopt more and more too. One I think is absolutely staggering. And I think maybe we're kind of doing it without realising just how absolutely impressive it is, is that what we're being asked to do is essentially redesign the model for primary care in one week. So in just the space of a few days, in fact, even just over a weekend, we're going from uh, a completely different system to a completely new system, one that many of us will never have used before. And you know what? It's going to be fine. We're going to be great with it. We're going to do it well. We're going to do it safely. We're going to do it with skill. We'll do it with kindness and compassion like we always do. And I think even though these are difficult times, I think it's going to work. I think it's going to work quite well for us. Then lastly, the the other thing that the government is doing is we're in this delay phase now. And there's a lot of debates. You see it all over social media. Everyone's got an opinion. Whether we're doing enough, whether we've done enough, um, should we be doing more? Should we be closing schools, universities, businesses, um, stopping all sports events and the like? 
And I will freely admit I am not an epidemiologist. Uh, <laughs> clearly, I'm not. I can't even say it. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not someone who's modeling these stats. So I will freely admit that I can't make a really educated um, opinion on this. But I think what's interesting is that there's so many people that think there should be a definite answer. We've got people doing these modeling studies based around the information that's been growing over the last three months, over our understanding about how previous pandemics have spread. But the reality is that with all these modeling um, studies, there's still quite a lot of guesswork. It may well be educated guesswork, but they're not necessarily going to be completely right. They're not going to be completely correct. They can't predict everything. This is a new condition that's that's only been discovered three months ago. We don't know everything about it. Some of the, even the basics, we don't really know about it. So I think when the top scientists, when the politicians are having to make decisions about how we manage this, um, both in terms of the the health side of things, but also the social and the economic side of things, I think basically it's complicated and there is no right answer. Hindsight will obviously provide us with some greater information, some greater insight, but as ever, hindsight is a wonderful thing that we do not have right now. Ultimately, someone needs to make the decision. That's not going to be an easy decision. They need to share the information then about how we can uh, manage the problem based on that decision. And so far, I think that's kind of what's happening. I, I mean, I know there's also difficulties with the dissemination of information about how we can work this in primary care. But I also have a lot of sympathy for those who are running our CCGs because being able to rapidly um, adjust an entire medical system in an area is tough. It's not easy. And ultimately, I think we need to support them as best as we can rather than giving them too much of a hard time. Okay, so I thought maybe now we could just have a look at some of the latest science that's come out about coronavirus. So I've put a lot of this in a keep it simple summary on coronavirus, which you can find on the nbmedical.com website in the Kiss from NB tab at the top right of the webpage. And it's free to download and have a read. Um, I don't go into huge detail about all the policy. This is rapidly changing all the time. But I thought it would be interesting for a lot of us, especially those of us who still have a, a healthy interest in the science underpinning illness, I've tried to go into some of the detail that's been published in the latest journals and research recently. So some of the key things for me, where did it come from? Did it come from bats? And it probably didn't come from a biological weapons factory based in Wuhan in China, as my wife suggested yesterday. I'd heard this before. I was doing a creme form at the undertakers the other day, and the head undertaker there said um, that this was actually the plot of a Stephen King book who had written this about a decade ago. And um, as part of the, the book, there was a pandemic that spread from a virus that was uh, produced in a biological weapons factory in Wuhan in China. So I guess this is uh, there's a small chance that that could be where it's genuinely come from. But I think it's just a conspiracy theory. And I think it's just a really, really um, random guess from Stephen King, which has turned out to be prophetic. But the actual DNA analysis of the virus shows that it it probably does uh, has evolved from a virus that you find in bats, which is what we also found with SARS. And so actually the name of the virus is SARS-CoV-2. 
the disease it causes is COVID-19. Um, but this uh, coronavirus is very, very closely related to SARS. How is it spread? Well, it's predominantly droplet spread from um, from respiratory secretion. So sneezing and coughing spread it. Um, even being in close contact with people breathing on you for an extended period of time is uh, a possibility for how to get it. But they've also found the virus shedding in, in pretty much all bodily fluids. So um, particularly, they found that in feces. So interestingly, you can find viral shedding in respiratory um, secretions for up to two weeks after infection, but actually for four or five weeks in feces. Although it's also true that it's unclear whether this can then go on and cause new infections in other people. It's also true that they found viral shedding happening one to two days before symptoms develop. But it's also not clear whether people can be infected in that period. And as things stand at the moment, it's generally felt that uh, you're only infective whilst you are symptomatic, which is probably one of the reasons why we've got this seven-day isolation recommendation now for suspected cases um, who can then stop self-isolating at the end of that period if they are symptom-free. A key thing that we need to know is research demonstrates that um, many patients may not have the classic symptoms of fever, shortness of breath and cough. And so um, in fever, about three quarters of people will demonstrate that. And I should preface this with, with the fact that this is research in hospital based patients. So in the community, God only knows what proportion of people will have classic symptoms. It's likely to be pretty low. The prognosis is still fairly uncertain. So mortality rates are estimated to be about 1% to 2% or so. Of course, the figures in Italy look much higher than that. They're about sort of um, 4% or so, which is um, obviously a significant increase. Um, but some of this is going to be driven by uh, by the, the people that we're testing, missing a lot of those more minor cases within the community. So I think right now, no one can really say what the prognosis is. An important learning point for me was in a Lancet infographic that I saw a few days ago, and that's the duration from onset of symptoms to severe illness. And so there's a median um, time to hospital admission from the onset of symptoms of seven days of respiratory distress, eight days, and then ICU admission, 10 and a half days. So I think what this tells us is if we are counselling people who have probable disease, then we just need to be very careful about their safety netting, making sure that they understand that um, things could get worse over time. And if they do, they need to raise the alarm sooner rather than later. A big question was, how do we test and how accurate is the test? Well, it's done using PCR and I mean, the assumptions are being made that it's as effective as other PCRs. So the sensitivity is likely to be very, very good and it's going to be fairly specific, although all positive cases have to then be confirmed in one of the national reference laboratories. There remains uncertainty about the exact timing of the test. So the bottom line is, if someone is symptomatic, then they're realistically shedding loads of virus and you're likely to then pick that up on PCR. Um, but if you're um, swabbing asymptomatic cases really early, then it may well be that you could miss them. And of course, that's one of the reasons why people would still need to self-isolate, even if they have a negative test. A big question, of course, is do face masks help? 
And this was something that I've taken a long time trying to find some reasonable data on. And then an editorial popped up in JAMA today, which basically said, yes, they do. So, of course, we all know that the European recommended gold standard face masks, which is one of these FFP3 respirator masks, and those do seem to be effective at reducing airborne transmission of viruses. Of course, we've got loads of packs of surgical masks in our uh, practices now, and there's a lot of scepticism that they will work at all. But actually, this editorial highlights um, recent data that shows if the clinician and the patient are wearing these face masks together when they're doing an assessment, then actually it seems to be pretty much as effective as one of these fancier uh, masks that we can't get hold of. We had a question about the best way to manage our asthmatic patients. And if people who are well controlled um, without using a steroid inhaler would benefit from going on a steroid inhaler. And I'll be honest, I haven't found any evidence to guide us in any way about this. But I think we should probably just adopt standard principles, which is let's just try and maximize their asthma management, get their asthma really well controlled. Um, if that needs to be using steroid inhalers, that's great. Um, let's do it. If their control is good without them, then they there's probably little rationale in starting them as a preventative treatment. But let's just make sure that their chest are as good as they can. So if they do get the condition, hopefully um, the asthma will be a little trouble for them. And I have to say, I called a lot of people yesterday who did have asthma, um, asthma flares up due to the time of the year, not because they thought they had coronavirus. Um, and I had a pretty low threshold for doing fairly aggressive treatment with them, even over the phone. I just think it's probably best to get them back to baseline as best as and as fast as we can and then keep them there. You can debate about the issues around immunosuppression with using prednisolone and um, you know high dose steroids. I think if we're using short courses, that's likely to be pretty low. But you know we're all just going on our sort of a, our best guess and our gut feeling here. So I think that's it. I think I've I've probably talked enough now. We're all super saturated with coronavirus news and information at the moment. But if there's maybe one message that can come out of this podcast is that I think we are all feeling anxious. It feels a bit like we're waiting for a big exam. And I think the next few weeks will be a tough test of our resolve. But we are highly professional. We are highly skilled. We are highly adaptable, more so than any of our other medical colleagues. We are used to working in resource poor settings with lack of investigations to help guide us. We are the kings of managing uncertainty, experts at delivering pragmatic medicine at a scale that we've never had to before. We are proving that we can completely redesign how we work within just the, the space of a few days. And the amazing teams that we work with will help us to do that. And so, yes, the next few weeks will be hard, but I know that we'll get through it. Uh, we'll get through it together. We will be at the forefront of keeping the nation safe. And loathe as I am to paraphrase a comment from the orange-faced, toupee-clad, numpty in charge of the USA, this actually could be our opportunity to make general practice great again. So hopefully, all things being well, we'll be back with a podcast in the next week with the latest research and guidance for us in primary care. 
We've got some upcoming Hot Topics courses over the next month. God only knows what's going to happen to those. Watch this space. Maybe we will all be doing these as live webinars from our self-isolation. Whatever you do, don't get downhearted. We'll get through this together. We're going to be absolutely fine. So look after yourselves, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>